The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. Right on time, as always, Scott. As always. It is that time. <laughs> Back on the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. I'm your host, Jay. Here at the Brewing Network Studios in downtown Concord. Flush with Beechwood Blundery Beer. Lousy with it. On tap, in bottles, everywhere. Also flush with Bevo. Hey, Bevo. I can hear you. Yeah, well, we were introing you. And then I was chewing professional it's called dipping scott got that tuck right in her lower lip hi guys happy to be here hello (laughs) hi scott's here too hey scott hello back with ryan and harrison from beachwood blundering what up guys hey hey killing it so far radio debut podcast before podcast much come here often (laughs) first time sour hours they're super stoked to be here it's been a long time coming super huge fans of the show and the Definitely spent a lot of time when we were at the beginning, still figuring everything out, a lot of time listening in and just trying to glean little pieces of knowledge here and there. That's awesome. Right Full on. circle. Yeah. I mean, now the, the knowledge gets paid for it, always. How are you guys going to top yourselves? You know, we finished the last show with the goose. Or well, what? The goose inspired beer. I keep, because it's a goose. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I just wonder where you're going to go from here because that beer was just mind-blowingly terrific. Well, we're about to find out. Can't wait. In a moment. Contact us. <laughs> 888-401-BEER. Join us in the chat. You can email us, scott at thebrewingnetwork.com, jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. You can watch us live right now, enjoying great Beachwood beers, thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV. Listen live, Brewing Network app, search BN Mobile, subscribe and leave feedback on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you do that kind of thing. Review of the week. <laughs> We do have a review from Vindaloo3. All right. And it's a five six says, Cheers to Jay in Moscow. I look forward to this podcast. The shenanigans mixed with sour knowledge is a breath of fresh sour in your face. <laughs> oh. Sounds terrible. <laughs> Highly recommended. My favorite episode by far was number 29, the first staff visit from the Rare Barrel. Every homebrewer oh, can meltdown. learn something and be entertained. Best show. And then he's got some emojis. Thanks for the uh, review, Vindaloo. Yeah, that was the, the show. You remember? Well, first off amazing meltdown we played kill the keg with Pliny the elder mm-hmm. we also do you remember we called homebrewer scott in arizona we went yeah, and made an cool. outgoing call which we did not set up mm-hmm. we we're just like oh we'll call him live and he it rang like nine times and we're like where's the voicemail we kept mm-hmm. waiting and then he picked up hello and then we we're like oh hey we're on the air and he's like oh and he was just like ready he had all his notes he like he had all the details on his beer his beer was terrific and that was one of the first real oh this is commercial quality sour beer from a home brewer and kind of here's how he did it yes and speaking of outgoing calls maybe we should call someone uh we referenced last show Hmm? a fan of west end girls mike during this show yes you know i see mike on the ice we play hockey in the same league together yeah yeah we should call him and while you're doing that i want to thank one of our sponsors before we get 
started Wine and Hop Shop, yes. wineandhop.com, locally owned and operated for over 40 years. Most items are going to ship within 24 hours. BN listeners get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 25 pounds and are BN shipping in the nose field of the shopping cart. Discount's going to be taken off after checkout. Madison residents, that's you, order your homebrew supplies online, wineandhop.com, then pick them up at Working Draft Beer Company. We got some of their great beers the other week. Located on Wilson Street, right across from Central Park, we'll waive the shipping and give you half off your first beer at Wine and Hop. Shop wineandhop.com. Wineandhop.com. Quickly, before we call Mike, Vindaloo's screen name reminds me of Who Ate All the Pies? Oh, yeah. An old regular <laughs> caller from The Session who lives in Australia and a longtime BN Army. There was a drop that I used to play on that show of him screaming gibberish into the phone, <laughs> and the first syllables of it sounded like Vindaloo, which I'm going to play for you in a second but beef have you heard from that guy recently i follow him on the social medias uh-huh. but not on the session oh, i haven't heard really? from him on the session okay mm-hmm. did you see him at any t- uh, at the homebrew, homebrew i haven't conference? seen him in years mm. Mm-hmm. I wonder where he's at. But he posts a lot of pictures of himself taking a bath. I mean, like, th- he's not. Say what? Okay, that didn't come out exactly how I meant it to. Is that what you follow? <laughs> Shut up, Kevin. Kevin in the background. NSF dub. No, no, no. He'll take like a picture of him. He'll have his phone, and he'll take a picture of himself, and he's just reflected, just his like neck and above reflected in his mirror. So he's clearly taking a bath, but then there's a beer on the counter right next to him. He does a lot of bath beers. He's still a beer guy. That's clearly. the thing, yeah. But anyway, I remember, and I know, Jay, you you were listening to the session back in these days, too. I remember, if, I wonder if you remember this drop. It kind of sounds like Vindaloo. Now he's <laughs> who ate all the pies is saying something there. Nobody yeah. knows what he's saying, but if you listen to those, that first syllables, Vindaloo. Vindaloo. I always, that's how I would always play it. Isn't Vindaloo an Indian food dish? Is it? I don't know. Oh, more information with Beverly Moore nope. <laughs> coming up later in the show. We'll okay, we'll look it up. <laughs> all right, let's call Mike. You guys, uh, we're just at Temescal where Mike is now head brewer. Just uh, yesterday, is that right? That is correct. Yeah, some good beers. I know you're flying back this evening, but what's on tap for the rest of the day? After this, we're getting on the plane and heading back. There will be a gap. We can get a quick poker game in. Is there Please. a foosball <laughs> table around? <laughs> oh, probably. Do a rematch. I'll continue while you're working on it. And thank, uh, Is it not working? No. American Homebrewers Association. There we go. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> They're a community of more than 45... Thousand individuals sharing a common passion beer since 1978. The AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting home brewer friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at the breweries at breweries and homebrew shops, hosting one of the kind of events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer loving peers at homebrewsassociation.org. If he, if he doesn't pick up, should we just play West End Girls on his voicemail? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Four. Oh, wait, turn it down. Oh, yeah, turn yeah. it down. Uh, Four. <laughs> wait, wait, turn uh, it all over. Uh, yeah, yeah. Eight. Wait. Six <laughs> is not available. <clears throat> At the tone, please record your message. Yeah, yeah, we when know When you finish recording, you may hang up or press one for Maybe more hang options. Up? Make sure you listen to the whole voicemail, Mike. It's a home or commercial use water testing kit, which incorporates a revolutionary photometer. Photometer. 
first and only on its market with its own app. Over 40 water quality tests. Chloride, calcium, hardness, pH, sulfate, and much more. In a restaurant. Podcast listeners should enter code TBN10 at checkout and save $10 on either standard or advanced smart brew test kit. Order now and make this futuristic technology part of your brewing process. Smartbrewkit.com. All right, let's get them off. All right. Bye, Mike. See you, Mike. <laughs> that was very productive. Yeah, that was... <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's dive into this cool ship that we have here. Please. Can you guys tell us a little bit about this other very special bottle that is clearly unreleased? World premiere here on the Brewing Network. Another one. Awesome. What's, what's up with this? this one. This is our... By the way, Harrison's got this... Uh, yeah, I'm still voting on the chair here. He's, uh, he's got this, uh, you know... The speaking style where yeah, he's got the he, he starts with the mic right in front of his face. It starts off great, and then he swings. Yeah, the he becomes a pendulum for no reason. <laughs> kind of hear him as he comes back. And he's back he, you must and be and I'm telling more. Right? I'm After trying to my, create like a sound. And now he comes back. <laughs> yeah. I just want all of your ears just to surround sound. It's surround sound. right. It's in stereo. Anyway, cool ship. Anyway, this is uh this will be our second cool ship release. Um, this one is the the method one. We do a turbine mash. This goes into the cool ship at very hot temperatures, scary temperatures, mm-hmm. and it uh, it cools overnight in our barrel room, then goes into barrels for extended periods of time. And is that <laughs> hopping rate fall within the half to 0.8 uh, pound per barrel? Uh, it is typically the same, yeah. Okay. Um, we do pre-acidify to 4.8 or so, typically. Helps with some of the uh, enterobacter mm-hmm. growth and keeps some of the gross flavors out. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Is that method traditional? Yes. We've been told that a lot of Belgians do this. Yes. Okay. So if they're doing it, I'm sure it's cool if we do It's a it. podcast, so yeah, you yeah. just did two thumbs up. Just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very expressive. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. It's built into the uh, the method traditional guidelines. Uh, I will say, add to that, that this is a blend of one-year-old spontaneously fermented barrels. We have only had our cool ship for two and a half years now, so we weren't able to put out a spontaneous one, two, and three-year blend this year, but we are looking forward to being able to do that next year. Mm-hmm. And then you will be able to try side-by-side uh, a goose-inspired beer that was made with our house culture and... Maybe not every single step was totally traditional. And then you'll be able to try that side by side with a beer that is a one, two, three year blend that is spontaneously fermented with all the traditional steps. I think that'll be a cool thing to be able to side by side those beers. Yeah, definitely. And to your guys' palates, what what is the difference between the two so far? I know, I know it's a little uh, an unfair comparison, but the one year versus the three year blend. Uh, just on, on the, uh, like basically... The Funk Yeah versus our one-year blend of mm-hmm. house. I think there's definitely some like, deeper complexity you get from blending the different years, a uh, different acid profile because over time, acidity changes. Yeah, I think it just creates a more complex beer, definitely on the, especially on the acidity side. I think the Brett like, has a couple more years in those older bar- barrels to like develop some more, to convert some more uh, compounds and create some cool funky flavors. So I think 
you're getting more funk and a, a more complex acidity when you're doing the uh, the blend of one, two, and three-year-old barrels. And what have you seen change over time with your initial cool ship batches? I mean, presumably you had your first one, and that went a certain type of way, and then <laughs> now you're still continuing to do it. Do you do you wait for certain times of the year? You know, how many how many turns have you gone through that, and what it, what have been the various results? Yeah, it's definitely been an experiment and a, a lot of like wide ranging uh, results. It's we didn't want to just go in and just rely a hundred percent on the cool ship when we got it because we knew it was gonna be a learning process. So we started out the first year we winter we had it. So we only do it in the winter time. We try to shoot. We do have temperature control in our our barrel house. I should have probably mentioned that last episode when we talked about the temperature data. Like we were able to use that temperature data we collected because we actually do have the ability to control the temperature in our barrel room. So we can drop it down below 50 in there and then also try to choose cool nights uh, in winter. And that first year we did about eight batches in the cool ship. Uh, Total right now, uh, production-wise, about 15% of the beer we make goes through the cool ship. And yeah, it's not extremely consistent for us yet. I think it's getting better as like there's just more... of our culture kind of living in the brewery, like maybe spilling out over barrels or croisoning and like living in the wood and also just kind of us figuring out like the best time to do it and kind of just some of the methods. So that first year, I mean, not all of the beer turns out great, put it that way. We definitely have around like 25% of the beer that's coming out of the cool ship. That's just really good and really interesting. And we can use that to blend on its own into like pure spontaneous blends. And then about 50% of it, we use that just goes into kind of our other uh, core beers. So a lot of times you'll get a, a, a bottle of one of our other beers that might have an element of spontaneous beer in there because we use it for blending. Um, and then some of them just don't end up turning out and just have to go down the drain because that's an important part of making these kind of styles and doing this kind of process with the barrels and, t- and taking risks and stuff is if a barrel doesn't turn out, uh, you got to dump it down the drain. So when you have this 15% of your total production, are those also going into punch-ins, or can that be any barrel? Uh, we put some a decent amount into punch-ins because we want to have three-year spontaneous beer because we're using our punch-ins for the longer-term aging, but the majority of it goes into regular 59 gallons or uh, wine barrels. Punch-in is kind of an expensive thing. Let's say one of the beers that didn't turn out well. How do you approach that reusing that barrel basically going forward uh we haven't had any of the pun- we haven't had to dump any punchins yet oh, good. luckily it depends on the f- like the flaw usually with the spontaneous stuff uh what we've noticed or when things go wrong uh, we're attributing to too much enterobacter growth at the beginning and not quick enough yeast fermentation so the enterobacter, like when the yeast starts fermenting, it's going to stop the enterobacter fermentation, which is just happens right at the beginning. Um, and pre-acidifying does help with that. I, we didn't do that at the very beginning. So I think we're going to see more of our beer turning out better because we're pre-acidifying a little bit before the cool ship. So uh, the enterobacter creates all these kind of off flavors. If you let it get too crazy at the beginning before yeast fermentation starts, it's not alive in there anymore. It's not going to like leave anything behind in the barrel. It's really just these compounds left over in the beer. And I, I call it rotten cabbage. I think that's, and a little bit of this, th- those kind of compounds actually adds like a cool funk. It's kind of like below, like the acetic thing, like below certain thresholds, 
it's really good. But it becomes get, kimchi, which yeah. is good rotten <laughs> yeah. cabbage. Yeah, but when you get too much, it, it gets pretty overpowering and gross. So something like that, we would just do a really good cleaning pr uh, regimen on the barrel and definitely reuse it because there's nothing alive in there still. It was just something that used to be alive that created all of these flavors. You guys built the cool ship from scratch, right? And the infrastructure around it was built new. Is that right? Yeah, so we had the cool ship made by... It was actually like a restaurant supply store that they're used to like building like sinks and stuff. So they're just like, this is a really, really big sink. It's a big tub, yeah. yeah. And we had it put up near the rafters in the back of our brewery. And we had some piping in from the outside that actually brings in outside air and puts it right on top of the cool ship because uh, having the out, like the, the natural microflora of the surrounding area is obviously important to spontaneous fermentation. We can't, you don't want to just rely on what's living in the wood at your brewery. I think. Actually, what you're mainly relying on is what's coming from the air and specifically outside. So sure. Since we didn't have, like, ability to put it somewhere in the rafters with, like, windows right next to it, we just had... We already had this makeup air coming into the building. We're like, why don't we just pipe this makeup air over and put it right on top of the So cushion. there's an inline fan driving the air. Yeah, right. okay. there's a fan. So the, now, if you're building a new brewery and you're putting a cool ship in straight away, how long can you expect it to take for bugs to start be living in the woods such that they start affecting your beer? Six I think months, the most important part is location, right? The, ideally, you just are in a location where there's plenty of stuff floating around in the air and you rely heavily on that. I can't really say because we haven't done any kind of like scientific analysis on where the bugs are coming from. We haven't even done that much analysis on what's actually in there fermenting. So hmm. it's hard for me to say how much of it is relying on like what's living on the surface of the barrels or in the rafters versus what's we're sucking in from the outside air, like versus what might be still alive deep in the wood of the barrel we're using versus what's like in some of the hard piping that we're transferring through, like. There's a lot of different places where organisms can live and get in there, and it's pretty hard to quantify exactly where they're all coming from. There's actually someone did a study where they tried to do at Cantillon, they took sample or they tried to like go plate different areas of the brewery and find out which organisms were coming from where. And they actually had a really hard time even finding some of them, let hmm. alone like really analyzing where the specifically they were coming from. Hmm. Yeah, I think. That's spot on. And it kind of gets into the mystery of the spontaneous beer. Yeah. You know, when we tried our first spontaneous, my, I mean, it is it was a spontaneous batch at the Rare Barrel, but very different, not cool ship driven, just kind of open top tanks. And we tried to put out plates around the brewery. And there were There was growth. And it was like, okay, well, let's put the tanks there. Better to go off of some data than none yeah, at all. Sure. And no, we 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 actually just tried them for the first time today when uh, these guys were in there and not unpalatable. I think was the main comment. Hmm. Six months old, so <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. We'll like, take it. It's not a for sure dump. We're alive. Yeah, yeah, we're alive for now. All right, <laughs> Scott. What's your interpretation of this beer versus the the previous one? It has that same X factor thing. I always say charcoal, and I always remark on how that's kind of a stupid descriptor, and I need to figure out something better for it. But it's that 
the, the, the last beer was like very much goozy. Like it is that exact specific style and it's unduplicatable. It doesn't taste like anything else. This beer has that same sort of sharpness. Maybe it's like cedar or wood or something, but it's that charcoal, whatever. This is something where if I, if I drink it, I know that it's, this is a, a program that's been around for a while that knows what it's doing. There's some time in this beer. And it's it's not duplicatable, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like there's no way to there's no way to imitate that goose thing that this beer has. I like the term cedar. I think yeah, because there is this this aroma and and flavor you get from traditional goose that's kind of hard to explain because nothing else tastes like it. There's yeah, nothing right, else to compare it to, and it's like there's nothing even that close. So like I think I like to use the word cedar, even though it's not cedar, but that's one of my best ways to try to describe it to someone who might not know what you're talking about because it is this very distinct thing and i think that's one of the main flavor and aromas we were chasing because it is really hard to to get that and i think it, I, I can't say for certain like how we're getting close to it or what the best way is i think it and i i think americans tend to want to like find the one thing like find the secret i'm going to find this one thing that's going to make all the difference and i'm just going to do that I think it's a, it's more complex than that. I think there's you ha, there's a lot of things playing into it and a lot of things working together. And I think some things are more important than others. But I think a, the age hops definitely a huge element of yeah. it. And that is something that I didn't really think it was going to be going into this project. So a lot of people were talking about age hops online and when we were starting this, and I kind of was just I was like, okay, whatever. And after doing this project, I'm like, wow, age hops, yeah. huge part of that trying to achieve that um but i think also the, the culture interacting with those age hops has a plays a big role too so you can't just age hops alone you're not going to get you that but i think having the right blend of organisms is is plays into that a lot too and i think to, to some extent this the spontaneous fermentation does as well like a little bit of that enterobacter fermentation mm. at the beginning some of the compounds thrown off there and in the in the last batch uh there the the three-year blend that we tried last show uh, wasn't spontaneously fermented, but there was, I think, like one barrel blended in there. And we also, with our house culture, we pitch at such low rates. Like we're trying to mimic spontaneous fermentation when we're pitching our house culture that there is a chance actually for a small enterobacter fermentation to happen because we're pitching so low. So even though we're not doing spontaneous fermentation when we're pitching, we're trying to mimic it at the same time. And you, you think that contributes to that, that thing we're describing here, that sharp yeah, pepper so or cedar think, thing? Yeah, I think a little bit of enterobacter fermentation, the age hops and your 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 bacteria and your brett, uh, I think those are kind of some of the main components that go into trying to create that cedary, goozy yeah. aroma. I know that I particularly enjoy that element in, in sour beer, and you don't find it very often because it's mm -hmm. really hard to do. Another A-plus, guys, home run. Just yeah, terrific. Definitely. And speaking of that, I mean, we are four for four. And yes. There's more 100%. beers to try. Yep. Can we tease a quick question brought to you by Dr. Lambic? Dr. Lambic, Sour Beer Blog. Check them out. Sour Beer Blog, great written resource. And they're opening a brewery, Melamink Brewing, at melamink.com. So it is a question about bottle conditioning from Roger. My favorite part about Roger. He's the head brewer of Faction Brewing Company. Yes, Roger Davis. Has, <laughs> and there's a picture of his ass attached to this email. <laughs> it, Roger's email Please, is... Please, I've seen that enough. <laughs> his email is largefarvo1. It's definitely Roger. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we'll do a bottle conditioning question here right after the break. We'll be right back on the Smarrow Wow. 
Are you a member of the American Homebrewers Association? Well, you should be. Members of the AHA can focus on brewing beer, and the AHA takes care of the rest. The American Homebrewers Association advocates on behalf of homebrewers like you to legalize the hobby in all 50 states and make sure that beer laws make sense. Plus, there are many great benefits that come with your AHA membership, like AHA member deals that give you awesome deals at bars, restaurants, breweries, and more. Zymer G Magazine and E. Zymergy for tons of articles, how-tos, easy-to-follow recipes, and news about the hobby you love, and access to the members-only content on homebrewersassociation.org. But the AHA can't do it without your support. Join today so the American Homebrewers Association can keep fighting for your homebrewing rights. Visit homebrewersassociation.org or join now from the homepage of the Brewing Network website. Relax. Don't worry. It's the American Homebrewers Association. Yeah, yeah. Sour hour. <laughs> Speaking of BN shows like the Sour Hour, Brew Strong, Dr. Homebrew Brewing with Style, Bikes and Beers. Oh, by the way, did we did we do our homework over the break about the new show? Shine Runner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, a, uh, it's a show about marketing, craft beer marketing. Is that right? That's right. And then what about the uh, Spanish language? That I will. Bevo explained it to me, but it was all in Espanol, and I didn't understand what she was saying. Okay. Well, we should we should look it up. <laughs> we should. Bikes and beers, heads and tails, shine runners, shine uh, not plural, shine runner. Yes, I, I can't read my own writing. Oregon Fruit, another great sponsor of the show. Aseptic purees, easy to use, convenient to store, no additives or nor artificial flavors. Simply great expression of the raw fruit. And they love working with brewers to help us innovate. Check them out. Fruitforbrewing.com, Oregon Fruit, name of fruit to life. Okay, now we've got some more beer. Additional beer. Man, you guys brought so much beer. Thank you so much. We like beer. It's a red wine beer. Oh. Thank you, Neil. This is Come In Grape. Your time is up. That it is. What is this beer? So this is grape beer that we do each year during uh, the grape season. So we will take a one a blend of one-year-old Lambic-inspired barrels, and we'll go up and get freshly picked grapes uh, from the Paso Robles area, drive them down, and then this year we decided, or I should say I decided, much to everyone else's <laughs> dismay, to get whole grapes, bring them down, and then de-stem them all ourselves by hand. Mm. <laughs> nice. How many tons? Almost two. Total, probably like 4,000 pounds. Two uh, tons. <laughs> we found a pretty good method, actually. So uh, I was looking on, on the Googles, and you got like a bus tub with a milk crate in it. And what you do is you push the cluster of grapes through the milk crate, and the stem is just left behind because it's like long and doesn't go through the holes. But all the grapes just go straight through the holes. So... Literally just sit there and rub the grapes back and forth on top of if the milk you're not crate. Listening, if you're not watching on brewerynetwork.com slash TV, you're really missing yeah, yeah. some of the all-time yeah. great hand yeah. gestures. I'm trying to get yes. in on this hand gesture. Actually. What is the <laughs> dance here where it's like this and like this? Decimming grapes by hand is not... No. 
it's time yeah. consuming uh, and sticky. But how how long did it take for for those like listening? They're like, oh, you know, I'd love to get two tons of grapes and a milk crate and do the rubbing technique that I just saw yeah, Ryan you're do. You're generally <laughs> rubbing for about six or seven hours mm-hmm. with lots of help, even total. Yeah, we we knocked it out in one day with like five people. That's pretty good. Whoa. But yeah, we'll probably we'll probably rent some kind of destemmer this year. But my my thought was that good driving luck. the grapes dra- <laughs> down in the truck hole was gonna keep them a lot better than having them destemmed and crushed at the winery because uh, there's chance a lot higher chance for oxidation and just like fermentation starting in the sure. truck because it's a pretty good mm-hmm. drive because that's what we did the first year and uh, I, our our beers turned out fine that first year but I definitely noticed that the juice was like already kind of starting to ferment and like mm-hmm. a little oxidized on top so my idea was to try to get it as like fresh as possible into the barrels and also um maybe just having the grapes as whole as possible might kind of uh make fermentation not be super vigorous um i've just heard that of, of belgians doing that where they use whole grapes like mm-hmm. not like juice or or crushed or macerated or anything so this one's with Zinfandel grapes, and I think yep. we have one on our Brewing Network World Headquarters draft system, mm-hmm. which is, there's a little disagreement about what beer that might be, actually. Maybe we should look into that. Oh, uh, Actually, we'll let's, right let's get both. Let's just yeah. sure get the other beer in. Sure. Yeah. You know, I do want to pay off the question we teased before the break, though. No. Uh, uh, okay, so moving, moving on. Uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> so, well, is this beer bottle conditioned? It is. Okay, yeah, perfect. Every, everything we do is uh, bottle conditioned. Every, okay, right on. Uh, and you, Jay, too. And your, your keg conditioning and bottle conditioning, everything, right? 100% of our bottles are bottle conditioned. Okay. And about... 90 to 95% of our kegs are force carbonated. Right. Oh, I see. So you're only you're only keg conditioning a, a handful. Most yep. of the time it's force mm-hmm. carb. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So now the question from Roger, large Farva one, is bottle conditioning on side or upright? Oh, so what's so your, controversial. What's your method? Yep. We started out. like the bloods in the cribs, basically. Yeah. We started out. <laughs> We started out doing them vertically and then switched to doing it on their side. But I will say for us, that was primarily a, a space issue because when you stack the bottles in one of the, the cages on their side, you can fit a lot more bottles in a certain amount of space than if they're in boxes. Um, and we just have a very limited amount of space. It also, when the beer is not in boxes, uh, the airflow is a lot better and your beer will warm up to conditioning temperature faster. So as far as if the bottle was in the exact same scenario on its side or upright, I don't think that there is a big difference. Um, from what, from the small amount of experimentation that we've done, I, we've not done much, so I don't want to like say that definitively at How all. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did it once. So that's the way it is. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't feel very definitive about it at the Rare Barrel. We do uh, all upright. My thinking behind that is, I'll echo a lot of your um, points there, Ryan, where we, so we store upright in cages, and I think the airflow through that, the temperature changes are pretty good because they're not in boxes. At the same time, I, I do think there's a difference from being from the top outside of the cage to center middle row that we have uh, three three layers in a cage so i think there's a difference there 
coming up in brewing, I always heard that, you know, it's great if you can age your beer, age, I'll emphasize that, age your beer straight up and down because you're having a lot of um, maybe undesirable compounds fall towards the bottom. Theoretically, you can, it'll smooth out over time. When you pour the beer, you can pour off the top and not pour the bottom. I don't necessarily think that has the same thing as is, is the same thing as the conditioning phase, which is, you know, a lot of people swear by, hey, I'm going to put this bottle on its side and the area of the yeast cake that's in the bottle that is exposed to the, to the beer is much greater if you're on the side, I believe. So if I could just, you know, all in theory and definitely not in practice because this would be a huge pain in the ass, what I maybe would like to try to do we could probably do this with like one cage at the rare barrel, but take a cage, which for those who aren't familiar, um, there's like crisscross wire, like steel. Um, yeah. Forming squares. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we put uh, two layers of plywood in there. And so we can get three layers of bottles. It ends up being about just a little over 500, 750 milliliter bottles in a cage for us so maybe what i would try to do is initially start with all the bottles on their sides for one to two months if it's going to be something like some of the beers we've tried to today spontaneous maybe go more like three to six months and then store them upright after that but also with a donut hole cut out in the middle of the cage Imagine it. So for the, for those pro brewers out there, you order like fireman malt, right? Those malt pallets are different from the other ones. There's a big gap in the middle, right? Whereas, you know, if you just get a pallet two row, they're stacked. So the whole pallet is full. So that middle part of the pallet is just open, allowing more airflow for the upright bottles. I think that's maybe the best of both worlds, but... If anyone out there is thinking about doing that, I'd be like, just please, for the love of God, try it first, because that's a ton of work. We could probably try that on a, like I said, a one cage basis, do some side-by-sides, but I'd be pessimistic that there, it would produce like a s- statistically significant difference in results. Well, there's only one way to find out. Yeah. Just, every time I come here, I just make more work for myself. <laughs> well, do you have, do you have bottles that didn't come out that are just kind of like, no, I, I would do it with actual bottles. Number one, because I don't believe there'd be a significant difference. And if there was I'm sure it would just be interesting. And if it's significant and good, then that's a different version of the beer. I mean, there's a lot of people trying out, Hey, this is our tart saison. Here's, you know, 90% of the batch and we're going to sell it. And then here's the 10% that we put into green bottles. Mm. And maybe we put, you know, a hundred bottles in the sun for two minutes and then a hundred bottles for five minutes and then a hundred bottles for 10 minutes and come try the flight. That'd be cool. That's cool. Right. I mean, not for most people, but for nerds (laughs) like us, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think it's like, we don't need to use 
quote unquote bad beer to do that. Plus, we don't have any on on site. <laughs> sure. No, I, I mean Why that. In, I mean that in a way like we get rid of it. <laughs> we we only have about one cage of beer that didn't carbonate fully, mm. and it's just because the beer tastes super good, and we just want to use it for something else. We haven't decided yet. It's about two years old. Have you guys had that blendery, guys? You couldn't sell something that you had already bottled. Uh, we've had to wait extended periods of time for conditioning flaws to to come undone or to get resolved. We do have one beer that's still in bottles that we're kind of waiting to see if it turns a corner that we that seems fine going in and then is not not something that we want to sell at the moment. So it it's pretty rare, but every it, it has happened. But more often, did than someone that, say rare? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Does that mean we all take a shot or something? <laughs> you missed it, Jay, but you got a you got a beef head. Shake. Oh no, I saw. Oh please, oh, I saw. the disgusted head shake. I can always sense. By the way, we do. I wanted to confirm what we have on here at the Brewing Networks. Oh, Kevin's uh, going to get it. Oh, right, yeah. So we have the other guava, the lambic with guava, and the lambic style with muscat grapes, which is that's what's in our glass right now, right? No, oh, this is, this no. is Zinfandel. Oh, this so is. That's what I was saying. Oh, right, we should right. we okay. should get the other one. Yeah, yeah. All right. To try side by side. Right yeah, on. Muscat has been one of our favorite grapes to work with. Uh, just creates like a lot of these cool like floral like really kind of sweet it's a, it does it's a dessert wine grape so it has this like a lot of sugar content so and there's a lot of cool flavors that come out of it yeah we really like it of all the beers we've had so far for me this, uh, this is the fifth now this one has the most sweetness which goes away the second you swallow it but right as it hits your palate there's some sweetness there scott told me in secret that he thinks it's thin no, <laughs> super watery Ugh. No, but I, I am interested. You know, we're, we're lucky being in California. We have, you know, amazing access to wine grapes. But for those who, you know, maybe can get a beat on wine grapes that they want to use, what's the, you know, the idiot's guide to choosing the right grape varietal? You know, because there's a billion different ones. And, of course, there's the more popular ones, more popular wines like Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon. Where do you go from there? Do you start with those, or is it, are there ones that are more suited for sour beer making? Uh, just ask Jeremy Grinky. He loves it when people just ask him questions about wine. <laughs> 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 That's uh, something we're still really trying to figure out, actually. And uh, I wish I had more answers to that. And I think that's a question that we're still asking and trying to figure out hey this is jeremy from brewery to Roo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what i would suggest though from our experience is try to choose a grape that is very bold and flavorful uh, just ask the winemaker be like hey i want a, a grape that's like has a lot of flavor a lot of color it's really bold in order to really come across in the beer because if you use a grape that's lighter. I think it, it doesn't come across well on the beer. We made a, a red, a red grape beer last year that that definitely turned out a lot lighter in color and a lot lighter in flavor and kind of had more of like a rosé feel. And a lot of people liked it. It was a, I mean it was a good beer. It just wasn't what I was trying to make going into it. I thought maybe it had to do with the concentrations, but we're we're doing really high concentrations. We're doing like four or five pounds per gallon and then blending back uh, just to make sure we have that. That re- the concentration we want. Mm-hmm. But I think it was actually just the varietal. That was Grenache. And I think maybe uh, that certain crop was maybe tagged for a rosé. Or I just know that Grenache sometimes is used in rosé. And I'm still learning a lot about wine and grape varietals. So this year we picked Zinfandel, like late harvest 
uh, Zinfandel. Cause we knew that that's pretty bold grape. And then uh, Malbec. So this is actually the Malbec that we had. Yeah, so we the, just got the in front beer. of us. Yep. I, I, I find the Malbec to be much more mild. Is that, am I off base on that? I find the Malbec to be like fruitier. Like it almost has like a stone fruit character to me. Totally. And then the Zin is like tannin, like, like yeah. actual wine, mm. like has that tannin. Totally. So. Well, and when I, when I said sweetness, I just want to clarify. It's a perception of sweetness in doing these side by side. Yeah. Now all of a sudden the Zinfandel becomes, yeah, much more tannic, like you said. And then there's, there's no perception of sweetness, especially compared to the Malbec. Malbec. Yeah. Which has that, that fruitiness, which then tricks your palate into perceiving sweetness. Yeah, if you told me the Malbec was, you know, like a hibiscus or berry or, you know, this morning, not, sorry, not this morning, earlier today, we had that dragon fruit beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, At 9 a.m. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> this is much more anchored to me to a sour beer base where the um, Zinfandel beer reminds me a lot more of wine, which is an interesting dynamic also, not not just with different grape varietals, but like, what is the target, you know, for different brewers when they're bringing in wine grapes? Red, red <laughs> wine. Um, yeah, like what's the target? And, um, just to briefly say what we, what we did, we did our first uh, wine grape round at the Rare Barrel this past harvest. We had fun with it where we got Merlot and Petite Syrah, and then we reused those grapes and treated them all different ways and all this stuff, just, just be experimental. And when we like went back, we put beer back onto the grapes and the skins and all that stuff. And that was like, oh, this is like what I would expect. If someone said, this is our wine grape sour beer, that's what I would expect. It's like firmly anchored in sour beer but the beers that we made up front, it's just like, this is straight wine. And it, you know, it was 10 or 11% ABV Ooh. without being, you know, too crazy high. And I saw that this was like eight or eight and a half or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to see like, you know, what is your target? But I guess it's open to yeah. interpretation. You want to take that one? Yeah. I mean, I think you really need to like tailor it to your base beer that you're intending to blend it with, right? I mean, our base is pretty strong in flavor. It's it's challenging to overpower it, and we try not to anyway. But with grapes, like, if we don't use the, like, four or five pounds per like, gallon, like, it's just not going to come through past the beer enough to, like, like, oh, this is a grape beer. Mm-hmm. Also, like, you know, treating the grapes differently, we put stems in some of the barrels to yeah. see what that added, and we actually really like having a little bit of stem in the beer. Like it really adds like an earthy wet rain quality hmm. kind of like I typically. Can see, I can see that. Tommy who ran that project for us at the rare barrel calls it bell pepper, but the, more in like a negative connotation. We did the same thing. We didn't get that much of it or, or if it, if it was there, it was a positive thing. So yeah, I hate, uh, bell peppers are my least favorite thing on earth. So incorrect yeah um, <laughs> moving on yeah no, i don't know i was people get things in different ways but uh yeah some some people are wrong yeah tip, right yeah <laughs> sure. but typically green things in beer are bad they come off vegetal and mm-hmm. like bell pepper yeah um, coffee does that a lot as well but getting back to grapes i mean for us the red ones with a lot of flavor are awesome the muscat like it's so sweet and like it's actually like a subtle flavor, but like in our beer, it like 
comes across as like roses and mm-hmm. super totally. honey like and beautiful but flowers and berries yeah. yeah i mean tailor the grapes to the beer that you're like your base beer like if it's a really like like you know saison or something you might not want to use as high of concentration or as strong of a grape just because you're gonna basically just make wine that point nothing wrong with that (laughs) now these we have the bottle version with the zin grapes that's bottle condition and then we have the keg version with the muscat grapes and not keg condition right force car it is it is keg condition so all of our beer is packaged with like priming sugar and yeast um i we just feel that like the beer going through conditioning phase with yeast is uh more stable than something that you force car potentially just because you don't know how that beer is going to be treated once it leaves your building Whereas if you bottle condition in or keg condition, like, you know that the beer is fairly stable at the point of, like, letting it out into the world. Sure. Well, and to that point, you you know, I know Red Barrel does very limited distribution of their kegs generally, almost none. How widely are you distributing blendery kegs? Mostly just California for now. But, I mean, far enough where, you know. Concord. Yeah. Totally. yeah Thank you very San much Francisco for that. area. Mostly just Southern California. But, obviously, it goes to Denver a little bit in uh, Oregon. So like it's nice to like feel reassured that the beer is not going to like have a sure. like a diacetyl bloom or something from the PDO and or someone gets like a sulfury keg or something like that's just a nightmare. How do you well, deal I with agree- that, Jay? Well, well, so I I agree with your concern and I approach it actually the opposite way where going through a full refermentation that late in the process makes me nervous where you know, sure, you're going to keep the kegs until they're ready to go out, but the you know concern about how they're being treated or what the temperatures are, I also am concerned with keg conditioning about you know how much yeast goes up in suspension and what the finished carb level is going to be. So I'm almost reassured on the opposite of this, but you know, but there's like there's no there's no uh, there's no wrong or right there, yeah. it, and it does very much depend on. Your beer, your the feel of your beer, your house culture. You know, for us, I also enjoy seeing the differences in flavor and development over time. You know, one, one thing we notice, and I, I don't know if you guys have this as well, but when we QC our kegs that are from the cellar, ones that are partial kegs, I mean, our draft beer is probably like 95 plus percent approved, close to, close to 100%. If it's partially full either from the initial fill of the kegging run or for some reason we tapped it, didn't finish the keg and we're saving it for later. And then we check on it later that let's just call it viability of the keg drops to 50%. That pronounced. Do you get THP popping up? Surprisingly, no, we get a lot of diacetyl oxidation, like, weird like slick mouthfeel stuff which you know sometimes that can pop up as thp as well we do have those issues actually um from people like re-engaging kegs and Mm -hmm. stuff or if they're partial it does happen like it doesn't take much like oxygen i guess to just to ruin a whole keg of beer i mean it's and people think wait what are you talking about it's keg beer but you know every connection has oxygen introduced into it you put two sanitary connections together there's oxygen in there. It's mm-hmm. about, you know, an inch by an inch. That's air. That's getting in. Keg coupler, 
It's the same way. There's there's, there's no, error. Yeah, there's no guarantee. Um, we train our staff to like engage the cupboard and try to purge out the little cupboard piece on the keg first and before engaging. Like, hopefully that prevents it. But it's, I mean, it does happen where we go in like we're tasting our beers and we're like, this keg's trash. Like, yeah, it's, man, so yeah. frustrating. Yeah. yeah, we definitely urge try to tell people to not. Un, like untap and retap beer like once you tap it just leave it on and yeah. also the trick yeah the trick that harrison was saying with the engaging the coupler so co2 is pouring out on top of the the sankey fitting and then engage as fast as possible i think that actually does help a lot too so you you're leaving co2 on as you couple no because you have to uncouple it and stop the co2 flow in order to engage it uh I so you just that. like put, like purge it and then Unengage it and engage it as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, all bars do that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they all train they their staff. Much, yeah. yeah, well, the bars around here in Concord are pretty darn good at that because we know our beer. And the if, more you know. If, now, if you have a beer business, the city of Concord is a perfect place to start or expand it. Concord is centrally located in the Bay Area. It, in the Bay Area is killing it right now. Strong craft beer loving demographics here. We have a historic downtown where the Brewing Network Studios is located. A boom going on here. New businesses, new apartment complexes everywhere. Development is happening. Business and industrial parks that are centrally located for major Bay Area freeways. So if you have a large-scale brewery operation, an excellent place to expand the economic development team here in concord ready to help you find a successful location to meet your craft your business needs they'll help you through the permitting process and everything like they did with us give brian nunnally a call 925-671-3018 he is ready to help you open up your beer business in concord uh 925-671-3018 give brian a call and hopefully we'll see you here in concord none other than brian that's right nunnally brian nunnally none other uh so i think we should get to a break i think so but too. before we do I've come up with my idea for more information with Beverly. Oh, I thought Moore. we already had it. Wait, do we for this What's for it, this did show? It have to do with Indian food? Yeah, it's Indian food. Oh, the like is an Indian one. dish, but we can have a new one. Here's a new one. <laughs> what is a sazerac, and where was it invented? Okay. More information with me, Beverly Moore. After the break, we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Hi, this is Ryan Whedon, the host of a new podcast called Branding Brews. Branding Brews is a show focused on marketing, branding, and design for the beer industry. I have spent over 14 years as a professional designer. As a host, I bring my knowledge to the show to interview other great beer professionals. Whether you're thinking about starting a brewery, already own a brewery, want to learn more about marketing beer, or you're a seasoned veteran, this show is for you. This show will cover topics such as rebranding a brewery, package and label design, crowdfunding, design, social media, plus much more related to promoting and creating a great beer brand. Make sure to check out the show along with useful show notes at brandingbrews.com. You can also subscribe to the Branding Brews podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Again, check us out at brandingbrews.com. back big thanks to the guys from beachwood blundery thank you guys so much for coming up yeah yeah thank you want to thank a 
couple other great people. Who, Jay? More than a couple. Many great people. I have no idea how many people work here, but it's Neshaminy Creek Brewing. Three-time Philly beer scene magazine brewer of the year. An epic Pennsylvania job provider. Yes. Many jobs. So many people work there. Two-time GABF Vienna Style Lager Medal winner. Two times bronze medal winner for Smoke Lager. One was completely my doing. I'm going to win bronze for <laughs> Smoke Lager. Renovated Taster Room, Friday Beer Styles. You guys know the drill. Check them out. NashamedGreekBrewing.com. I'm going to go out there. When am I going to Philly next? So Philly Beer they're in. They're uh, outside. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely at Neshaminy Creek. We looked that up. Yeah, we sure did. Somewhat close to a, a creek called Neshaminy. Okay, <laughs> here's a map. Yeah, Neshaminy Creek. They are on the creek uh, mm-hmm. in Croydon. That's right. Cor- Croydon is burning. Croydon is that's burning. That's their uh, bronze smoke lager. Yeah, that's right. So it looks like it's just outside Philadelphia. It's one mm-hmm. of the Philadelphia suburbs located on the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, on the Delaware River, like right hey, on the Pennsylvania side. Go Eagles until the NFC Championship <laughs> when Jimmy Garoppolo crushes you. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. Uh, Scott, yeah, we were talking it. during the break. Yes, and we were. you told me you had something to say about a good brewer friend of mine. Oh, yes. New Belgium. Yes, great, that's right. Great friends of yours and uh, longtime friends of the Brewing Network are friends. New Belgium, the uh, L- La Terrier release. <sighs> Le Terroir, 100% food or age, golden sour. You know Le Terroir. It's dry hop with whole cone, Amarillo, and Strata. This one is whole is Amarillo and Strata. They've changed it a few times over the years. I think it used to be 100% Amarillo, and then they had a dash of Citra. And Strata is a made-up hop. I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have you guys had it? Yeah, you messed with it. Yeah. What do you think of it? It's really good. It's really peachy. Uh, well, I haven't good. heard of a hop. I just say it's made up, <laughs> which is like 90% of the hops. <laughs> the only reason why we got some is because we did a little collab with the R and D Sierra Nevada guys, and they just happened to bring some down. Oh, experiment. Humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> All right, carry on. Well, so uh, the New Belgium is using this made-up hop in this year's Le Terroir uh, Amarillo and strata it's 100 naturally carbonated in the bottle look for it on the shelves mm. go to newbelgium.com there'll be a little locator you can find uh where to get 2018 letter whoever's in charge of listening to make sure that scott said that can you just send a case to the rare bro care of jay wow scott just broke his mic and what now he's happened? holding it yeah. you know we have mic stands here we're he's, a professional operation but he broke the mic stand <laughs> There's and now no, he can't move the because thing he has came to hold off. it. Yeah. What the heck is happening? The, this the screw thing came off. Just hold and it. And it just fell. Uh, by the way, can go? we just acknowledge the fact that Scott has been in professional broadcasting <laughs> for many, many years and he just called it the screw thing. The screw thing. This isn't even Let me get this on camera. This is Mike. Is it over here? I don't know, flew that way. What? Oh my god. I heard a bounce. I think it bounced off the desk. I feel like this might be the definition of what a shit show is. This isn't. This is not my. This is not my fault. I'm, this has got to be JP's fault, right? He's the one who uses his mic most often. Sure. Oh my God. We'll, we'll wait. No. What? Please continue on with the freaking show. Would you? Well, please? no. I have something else to say that you need to do okay. as the producer of the right, show. Okay. We're good. We're good. We're good. What? That was fantastic. <laughs> I think it got grease on my hand too. All right, what do I need Hashtag to do? Hashtag warrior. Are you okay to keep going? The show must go on, Jay. Speaking of going on, let's go on to more information with Beverly Moore. And now, more information with me, Beverly Moore. I sound so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Little does everybody actually know. Yeah. Um, okay, so 
around 1850, Sewell Taylor sold his New Orleans bar called the Merchant Exchange Coffee House to become an importer of spirits. He sold it to a guy named, where to go, Aaron Bird. Aaron Burr? Bird, B-I-R-D. Aaron Burr. Oh, gosh. We're old. Peanut butter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? every single one of us got it's, that. That commercial came out around the same time Julian figured out hey, his look. millennials who aren't laughing, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> go on. Hold on, man. I'm going to change the camera angle. I have to do two things at once. This it's is tough. difficult it's a for tough me. Job. And I'm talking like oh, Aaron Burr. Things. Aaron okay. Burr. Aaron Burr. So, legend has it that Mr. Bird began serving the Sazerac cocktail made with imported cognac from Taylor because he became once he sold his bar, he became an importer of spirits. Hmm. Um, and allegedly, he started serving it with bitters being made by the local apothecary. Anyway, yeah, you're right. What was your original assertion, Jay, about Sazerac? Invented in New Orleans. It's correct. At a hotel. Ah, right, correct. Not at a hotel, at a bar. But what is it now? Oh, oh that's a good question. <laughs> it does not say. Hmm. At least this particular page. Can you Google Sazerac Hotel? Can you come back to me? We'll come back to her with more information from and Beverly now, Moore. More information with me. I feel like that's Beverly less Moore. information. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and now you're dumber than when you started. Yes. Can we play that from uh, what Billy Madison? That scene. It's All right. Now I'm gonna open this beer. Since Scott's doing things, uh, this is Dia de los Mongols. You just said that it is is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. We love them. That. I want to know, like, who wrote that? Because you know I'm a big Sorkin fan. Yeah. Is it, that is Sorkin-esque hmm, writing right Interesting. There. That is wonderful. <laughs> All right. All right. What are we opening here? Dia de los Mangos. Tell Dia us about this. Dia de los this. Mangos. Describe. So this is a beer that's definitely on, like, the very, like, experimental side of what we do. Although it still starts out the same way. Basically, all of our beer starts out as a blend of one-year-old Lambic-inspired barrels. But, uh, so yeah, the inspiration behind this beer, so Gabe and I are both surfers and frequent the Baja region of Mexico. And he came back from a surf trip one day and he walked in with this lollipop. It's like a Mexican candy, and it's got mango in the center, like mango candy in the center, tamarind, and then like a chili powder coating oh, yeah. and he was like we should totally make a beer like this and i was like okay let's do it no, and uh, as, a, that, as a candy it kind of sucks but as a beer i'm sure it no, would be great i, you I have like to interrupt those yeah, things? yeah. Whoa, whoa. Come that on. sounds great and also Blech. i had the first yeah. sip of this beer wow I'm, I'm sure as a beer it's great as a candy well, apparently just, i'm alone you just have to go get the super <laughs> traditional stuff and deep in baja you know it's like you can't just get this pick up the stuff from the local store here mm. yeah so yeah, this is, we age it on, uh, do the secondary fermentation on mango and tamarind for two months. We Whoa. just get like the the tamarind bricks. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and you definitely get a good amount of tamarind character. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like, it, tamarind is like a cool thing. It's kind of sour on its own. That it has like a lot like, yeah, really. earthy, like sourness. And it, it, like jammy, figgy, datey, yeah. soury kind of thing. And then we uh, add a blend of five different chili powders right before packaging. Aleppo, Ancho, 
Kaji Amarillo, Guajillo, and Green Serrano. What? Um, and then, I love it. Yeah. So this is fabulous. Uh, it's so unique. I might take the extra bottle of this and no make kidding. a hot sauce out. Oh, out interesting. What would you do? What would be that that process? Top In a secret. nutshell, not a not a long rambling explanation where we're all have been dumber for having listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a long Bevo stare. Yeah, I love those. My nostrils also flared. Yes, big time. It'd have to be a very small batch. I'd use the cultures in to help sour my main like mash of peppers. I'd reuse the same peppers and then take the rest of the beer and do a reduction so that it's a more concentrated version of the beer in the hot sauce and try and just stay true to this. But man. I'd put this beer on a burrito, yeah, for sure. This beer happens in the to best be way. one of the best food pairing beers, which I was not expecting at the beginning. I actually, I don't know why we sent it to like a, a beer dinner for for fun. I think one time, and I wasn't really expecting it anything crazy from the from it being a, a food pairing beer. But it was it's always the most unique and cool pairing of the dinner anytime it's in a lineup because it just. The chili powder like interacts with things differently, and it's it's actually interesting. One dinner we were at, there was a pretty spicy dish that was paired with us. Like this is gonna be weird, like spice on spice, hmm. but it actually made the beer taste not spicy at all, and hmm. the, and just like brought out the fruitiness so much, and then like enhanced the the chili spicy character of the dish. Like it was super interesting. I can totally see that the the flavors meld together to. Make there's a watermelony quality to it. There's a, a real melon, which makes it sour beery. It's like oh, this is a sour, but even though you can just taste like chili, it tastes like mango. It has all of those individual flavor elements. It's super unique. The the melon really gives it a sour beer thing, as opposed to just a bunch of weird flavors that don't belong in a beer. I think I attribute that characteristic probably a lot to the tamarind. It has yeah, it has this like interesting earthy, fruity, sweet, sour element that like really kind of brings it all together i think is this the only beer you've used that in yeah have you used it before jay no we thought about using it for uh, a beer we were going to do and came up with other ideas hmm. but i i thought it was very intriguing as a sour beer ingredient i'll throw sure. a little extra information out there if people want to experiment more information with <laughs> with um, i personally don't like the like the syrupy paste that you can get at stores go get the straight up brick it looks like some kind of illegal substance. Don't just put it straight on the beer because it's too thick, but you also don't want to cook it. So the first time we tried to like soften it in hot water and we kind of used boiling water and heated it and it kind of ended up cooking it a little bit and it got really earthy. What I would suggest is get really hot water, but that with no heat anymore and let it soak in the hot water for a while and it softens up, but it doesn't cook it. So that way you get kind of the brick turns into more of a paste, but it's not... It's more legit than, like, the paste you buy in the little tubs. Yeah. Maybe you could, like, um, chop and steam or something. Yeah. So soften it up nice, but don't cook it. Soften it up nice. Yeah. There you go. So for those who are listening and they're just like, wow, I've got an idea it's sort of like this. And, by the way, you guys are doing a great job with, you know, there's these fruit elements you're introducing, but you're not stopping there. You're adding these extra things like the dry hop raspberry beer. Now we have like kind of a slightly spicy kind of mango influenced beer. We talked a lot about 
how do you execute the dry hops on the raspberry beer? For people who want to know and they're listening and saying, well, wait, how spicy is this? And like, what are you guys talking about? For me, my palate, I like spicy food quite a bit. This is what I would put as, I mean, spicy for a beer, but let's just say overall spiciness, it's low to low medium, I would say. Well, would you say that it doesn't have uh, heat almost at all, but it has that chilly flavor? Oh, no, it does have heat. You experience no, heat? Yeah, I experience heat. But, you know, overall for, for culinary experience, I would, I, I'm down with more than that. Maybe maybe it's more like a medium. But, you know, we talked about the, the tamarind, how to treat that. How much sweetness do you need and how much chili do you need in there to kind of execute? I guess not exactly this, but something like this if someone wants to try it. Yeah, my suggestion would be to try and do like small scale experiments with different varieties of, we use chili powder. We use five different varieties because each one adds something else. And basically all of the heat comes from the green serrano. So that's like our dosing that at the right level is what's what's controlling the heat. And then more of like the chili flavor is coming from a lot of the other ones. So finding the, the right ingredient and blending with, I think also with different ones is mm-hmm. going to what we how we created the exact kind of chili expression we wanted. You got to create your own Long Beach five spice yeah. basically. <laughs> Trademark yeah. Beachwood Blender. All right. Um, Something that I want to hit on before yes. we end our second segment is oh, we're going uh, we're going like three more hours. Oh, yeah. You guys missed your flight Sour already. Day. Buckle in, Bebo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something we haven't talked about yet is just is PDO. Something I really strongly have a lot of things to say about. I guess we're super PDO heavy brewery. Our culture, uh, the house culture we have going. PDO is definitely our number one lactic acid producing bacteria and we have now kind of like this house strain of PDO or maybe a bunch of different house strains of PDO that is kind of going in our barrels and I think that attributes a lot to our characteristic and our our flavor profile because of that. It also ties into the the paper. The data set that I didn't talk about yet was actually uh, genetic analysis. So uh, our friend and colleague Chris Wolowski at the time was working at Zymo Research Corp and came to us and asked if we wanted some next-gen sequencing done. And we're like, yeah, of course, like that sounds awesome. So we analyzed a bunch of our barrels uh, from one day old to one year old. And uh, one of the main things that we found, which kind of confirmed what we already thought and wanted to see was that our primary bacteria uh, lactic acid producing bacteria is PDO. It's found in all the barrels at a really high concentration. I, I'm sure you're right, but what was the empirical evidence of that? Like you saw a ratio of this many cells to this many cells of Pediococcus to lactobacillus or? Yeah, so they did, I don't know the name of like the whole process, but it's like some, it's kind of PCR mm-hmm. where it like amplifies the DNA. Sure. And, uh, so it kind of gives you a general kind of percentage rate of like what, how much back, like it's just like a percentage breakdown of bacteria in the barrel. And the majority of the barrels were like over 90% PDO. Wow. Uh, with like trace levels of lactic, lactobacillus and some trace levels of some like enterobacter in, in a couple. That's pretty high. We've had yeah. some early on in the rare bro, we had some of our beer sent to a lab in Napa called ETS Labs. 
and they did test if you guys want to do it out there called like a scorpion panel and they counted cells of <laughs> what's essentially wine spoilage microorganisms but we were looking at it for a different <laughs> reason and uh you know including that was pediococcus and lactobacillus and uh and then also acetobacter which is important for people to see so luckily enough i think we tested 10 samples or something like that all very low in acetobacter but the variance in which one was more lacto or pedio dominant was very interesting and then actually one beer i'll be honest one beer did have a very high count of acetobacter I was like, what? This beer is so good. Like, <laughs> what's going on? So we put it on quality hold and we kept it for an extra three months to see if it would continue developing acetic acid. It did not. And to this day, it has not. So, you know, definitely take these results with a grain of salt. But also, you can you can send your, I think it was like under 200 bucks, something like that. If you're making the same beer over and over again, I'd encourage you to send it out and try and get some testing done on, you know, yeah, what is the mix of your culture? You know, you don't have to overinterpret the results, as I was just saying. But uh, you know, it's good to know. Oh, you have a lot of PDO. Okay, important to know. Yeah, definitely helps a lot. I think empirically, we also just see we see a lot of ropiness in our beer too, which I know you guys talk about a good amount on the show. Definitely something that we like to see because it just means that our our PDO is happy and healthy, and it always we have so much Brett in everything that it always humble brag. <laughs> we got all we got so much bread dude so bread. No. we've got like billions yeah. of cells and stuff. <laughs> all the breads so yeah everything always gets cleaned up over time and also i like seeing stuff get ropey early on because that's less likely for it to happen later on down the line in the bottle or something like that we've actually never had anything get ropey in the bottle yeah so yeah yeah knock on wood <laughs> but even if it did there's lots of bread in there eventually it'll be fine so you know what we need? What? More PDO and also a little more information with Beverly a Moore. A little bit more? Not much. And Wait. now, more information with me, Beverly Moore. I still think like feel like it might be less. <laughs> I cannot find a uh, a hotel. That serves the original Sazerac at that location? The Roosevelt serves. Mm, that sounds right. But it's not called the Sazerac Hotel. Which is, which oh, that's fine. Yeah, okay. that's... yeah. The Roosevelt has a there's a there's a Sazerac bar in New in Orleans. Roosevelt. Yes, Sazerac bar. Okay. Yeah, so I think that might be it. Great. <laughs> I told you it's not that <laughs> much information with Beverly Moore. Is one of the most insane. Shut up, Scott. <laughs> At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything. That could be considered a rational thought. Look, I had a whole thing ready to go I'm about the to Indian give you a recommendation you about New me. Orleans on the show, live. And my husband, Sam, Sam, get out of here. Pick up the phone and tell him he's wrong about that thing that he was wrong about. You're wrong about everything. <laughs> uh, all right, are we done? Do you end done? Well, well, oh, oh no. not what? Yet. Okay, night. Can I have an extended thank you? And sure. also, of course, one last question, Scott. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. How could I forget? Yes. Jeez. Uh, Harrison, Ryan, thank you guys so much for joining us on the show. And we have to get you out of here on this one. Starting with Harrison. What is the biggest mistake in sour beer making? 
Just being self-critical about your own beer and uh, being willing to... You shouldn't do that. ...destroy it if it's it's not up to standards. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of us that that's all we do is make sour beer. So, like, I know we appreciate when, you know, good beer gets put out and bad beer gets destroyed. That's a... I just want to drink good beer. I think everyone wants that, so... I think the, for the sour beer world to continue to grow, like that's something that needs to happen. How much beer do you guys think you dump as a percentage, roughly? A lot of spontaneous beer mm-hmm. and uh, probably 5% maybe of our other production. Not bad, yeah. Okay. There's an element of not necessarily being objective about your own beer. Like maybe I don't think this beer is bad. You know, I have one staff guy, and I, we taste it, and it tastes good to us. What are pointers for people to be objective about their own beer so that they even know if they're releasing bad product or not? I mean, THP is something that is, like, pretty prevalent, I would say. In a lot thip. Of, thip, a little thip. Uh, excessive amounts of acetic acid. These are things that you can, like, do sensory on and learn what they are and, like, you know, recognize them in your own beer. Blind taste testing. Yeah. Like, uh... Because, yeah, it's yes. really hard to be unbiased <laughs> about your own beer. And there's also a sense when you're really trying to succeed and make good beer, like your brain really wants it to be good. Yep. And it's hard to, like, be really critical sometimes. Exactly. And, like, take a step back and analyze it from, like, a totally unbiased view. So the only way to get around that is just to taste it with other people's beer blind. Maybe I'll just piggyback on that for a second. I, I almost view it the same way but opposite. Where, for lack of better words, the people who work at the Robro mostly are hypercritical of our beer to the point of, like, I don't want to drink this. Maybe I shouldn't say that, hmm. but I do because it tastes, and I'll, now I'll just speak for myself, it tastes like work. And mm-hmm. every time I taste my beer, I'm always thinking how it can be better. And when I taste someone else's beer... If it's good, I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I can turn my brain off <laughs> and just right. just yeah. enjoy this beer because I know this is made by a brewer who, not to put myself on anyone else's stage, but who thinks that way too, was that critical of their own beer. Because ultimately, like, you shouldn't be looking at untapped or someone else's opinion for how your beer should be better should come from within because those people aren't there every day. They're not making all the decisions along the way. And every time I have great sour beer from someone else, I'm extremely thankful. I've been extremely thankful six times during this show. So thank you guys for that. Yeah. Just think you have to be your harshest critic. And so I almost view bias the other way where you're too critical. Yeah, and I know that sounds like, you know, for lack of a better word, I'm just going to say it, douchey. Yeah, I'm a raggy. (laughs) Um, But no, I don't know. Well, fuck how this comes off. I don't care. Uh, This is how, like, we approach it. It's just the reality. It's how we think about it, and I don't know if this sounds weird or not, but uh, sometimes it happens where you're just too hard on your beer, and sometimes um, we'll have a seller depletion party at the rare barrel and we'll clear out our cold box and here's all this beer let's try it all and you know it's like we're doing okay we can have a a survey of what everyone's making 
it can be helpful. And again, I'm now I'm just skewing super douchey, <laughs> but I'm also just trying to be real. You have to be your own harshest critic. You want, of course, you desperately want things to go well and be great. And I'm sure I've been guilty of that in the past. But when you have something special from another brewer, you have that blind tasting where it's like, I'm bringing you guys three other beers where it's like, these are dry hopped, fruited American sour beers that I really like. You'd be able to tell yours, but maybe they're in the same ingredients, let's just say. Now let's taste them side by side. Then we'd have a real conversation. Um, We're doing okay. I, I want, <laughs> Thanks, You're welcome. But yeah, Ryan, let's get your uh, biggest mistake. Uh, well, Harrison already took one of mine, but I had two that I already planned on saying. Yeah, I, so. <laughs> um, I think the one of the biggest mistakes people make is thinking that they can just kind of like run a sour program kind of haphazardly on the side and have it turn out good beer. I think you really need to dedicate time and energy to make good, funky, sour beer. And it's not something you can just kind of kind of do in the background and like be like, oh, this is some extra beer. Let's make a sour out of it. Or just kind of like the scraps or just something that you're not focusing on. Some think, nonsense side project. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, side project. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just people not... A perennial punching bag. Energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's also coming from someone who literally makes one style of beer That's... all day every day. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of biased. Yeah, no, I'm going I'm to hop on that too. Because uh, speaking of bias, I'm biased in favor of this answer, of course. Because I've been talking about that for years, that sour beer has been a thing that's kicked in the back. People sort of don't pay attention to it that much, but also the it's... The, it's the first thing they want you to taste when you come to their brewery, but they treat it like a crock pot with the set it and forget it attitude. It's like, oh, this will be good eventually. It's only so forgiving, though. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'll push back a little bit on your uh, answer, Ryan, as well, because as biased as I think I am, you know, as proven out by the great concentration you guys are putting into your beers and this wonderful beer, and I hope, you know, at the Rare Barrel, we aspire to do the same thing. At the same time, if someone's listening to our words right now, then they're not forgetting about it, right? They are putting some effort into it, and you can do this. If you care, you can do this. It can be a small part of your larger brewery. You can not tell your owners that you have four oak barrels in this one random part of the brewery, which is how a lot of yeah. Brewers have started their sour program. Yeah, in fact, totally. we've talked about that on the show. I think that's how Firestone Walker Barrel Work started. Yep. Yeah, for and sure. You, Definitely don't want to discourage anyone to starting a small barrel yeah. program in their facility. Just uh, know that it, it does take some energy. And yeah, listen to the Sour Hour, go online. There's like lots of places to gather information and, and really like dig deep and like figure out what other people have done. Like everyone in the industry is really open. I mean, if there's a brewer that you really like their beer, like just go, just ask them. I bet mm -hmm. you they'll give you an answer. Like, yeah. Just email Jay. Yeah. Jay. <laughs> From least yeah, helpful yeah. resources to most, the Sour Hour, Tied for Second, American Sour Beers Book, and Milk the Funk. Mm -hmm. First, Beachwood Blender Aid Block. Sour Beer Block. Sour Beer Block didn't make the list. Zero. Sour <laughs> Beer Block. No, yeah. Zero. Top of the list. Yeah. Mellow Mink. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for your beers, your honesty, your information, and for coming up in person. So nice. Thank you. Wouldn't miss it. 
Oh, well, I hope you missed your flight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for bringing all the beers, guys. They were just awesome. Six for six. Yeah. Fabulous. Definitely. Honest truth. Thank you to Beachwood Blendery. Thank you to Scott. You're welcome. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to more information with Beverly Moore. You're welcome. Home of the Sazerac. Until next time, stay Sazerac. Peppers are my least favorite thing on earth, so. Incorrect.